Hello, Michael. Hey, Kai. I hear, uh, I can hear your voice so much better now. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I'm using this new microphone that uh, Michael gave me last <laughs> night to uh, do these uh, call-in introductions, so we'll see how it works. Yeah, no, no, it sounds great. Hey, I just wanted to make a correction. Um, last time we spoke, you said uh, the save the date for S your, the SPQR sort of launch, book launch, was October 8th, and you meant 28th, I think. Oh, I definitely meant 28th, yeah. Yeah, the book launch is the last Friday of October, October 28th from 6 to 8 at Affirmation Arts. So uh, you were, uh, I think, pretty busy today. Along yeah, we had a, an amazing opportunity. Uh, Pace McGill reached out and uh, said that the photographer David Goldblatt was going to be in town for his exhibition, <clears throat> which is open there at the gallery, and uh, he wanted to meet with, you know, uh, 15 or 20 Columbia students. And so we wrangled some graduate students and undergraduates together <clears throat> and had about, ooh, about an hour and a half conversation with him in the gallery that was just, uh, I mean, it was generous and open. And he, I mean, I knew a little bit of his life story being there in South Africa and going and doing these photographs during apartheid. And, but to hear him, he was very generous and gave deep background story for every the two projects that were on display, but also just got went into what it was like, you know, being a photographer there during those years and and how much of the conditions that led to the photographs he was making in the 80s are still continue to this day, which was the heartbreaking part. Wow. I mean, what an opportunity that is. Um, I don't suppose you got a chance to ask him to be a guest. <laughs> well, he's leaving. He was leaving tomorrow for oh. London and he's, you know, still lives in Johannesburg and he's very rarely in the U.S. So it was like a, a very special opportunity. Absolutely. And I got him to sign. I have a copy of his book in Boxburg that came out in the 80s and I got him to sign it and personalize it to me. So, oh, very nice. Yeah, sweet. And from there, I rode my bicycle uh, from uh, 59th, 57th Street across the 59th Street Bridge, and I went to Greenpoint for the Independent Art Book Fair, and there met up with uh, two people, Carl Gunhouse, who's a blogger and uh, publisher and uh, also part of Transmitter Gallery, and he was just across the way from Ben Alper and Nat Ward, who were signing their book, Ben Alper slash Nat Ward, A New Nothing, and I uh, got a copy of that while I was there. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I think we can safely say that Ben and Nat uh, were our future guests. Uh, we did sit down and record with them, and uh, they'll be up uh, in the next few episodes talking about A New Nothing. Exactly. And uh, they showed us the... They spread out for us the book that they just did with um, They're There Now. Uh, and basically, this book, which they only made 100 of, is... Uh, a a craft object. I mean, the they have these little holes that uh, they made with slits to tip in prints into this accordion fold book. And I found out today that the connection between the two dots, the slit part was made with uh, a hand chisel just being pressed <laughs> in. And like, I mean, they're really like labors of love. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they're and they're beautiful objects. We got to see them uh, at Nat's uh, apartment. And you know, there, there are these fold-out books. They're, they definitely, they're beautifully made. It's not like handcrafted, like rough handcrafted. I mean, they actually look very made with great precision. All the folds, all the cuts, all the tip-ins. 
but they also have this look of a kind of a family album in a way, the way the prints are tipped in at all four corners. Yeah, beautiful. It's just a beautiful design, beautiful idea. So yeah, that was my my day. And then the rest of the day I spent uh, looking at the possibility of switching my website over to a WordPress theme because my the thing I'm using now is in a delicate state where the database <laughs> is somehow out of sync with the file system. And if I try to add anything, my entire site goes down. So oh, uh, fun, yeah. fun. Yeah. And, and I used WordPress for a long time. My, the problem with I had with it was speed, but other people don't seem to have the problem that I had. So it could have been my service that was mm. causing uh, speed issues. And then, um, as people might have noticed, the photo show went from a WordPress-based site to a, um, a, com- a site completely made by me, actually. And it is a lot faster, but it is a bit more work to update. Uh, you know, it doesn't um, file things like a blog um, so I have to sort of manually move episodes down the list as I go. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think a lot of photographers struggle with this is, I mean, if you have some technic, you know, technical savvy, which I certainly have been doing oh, you do. websites forever. So I, I, I could do it manually and, you know, design my own. But, uh, these days it used to be that you had to worry about uh, supporting like the three major browsers. And now you have to worry about every different size tablet and iPhone and uh, smartphone that people are using and responsive design and doing that CSS properly is, is actually a nightmare. So for something that you want to really look nice, like a a website with your portfolio photographs on it, I just think it's beyond the individual to keep up with unless they want to dedicate their life to it. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's a job. Yeah, it's absolutely a job. Uh, So that was my day. Uh, I know you had some uh, soccer action. Anything else you (laughs) want to tell us about? Yes, my son is playing uh, rec soccer and travel soccer. So it's a typical week is uh, three practices and two games. But but actually, um, Saturday was a, a pretty good day for the photo show. Um, this has been in the works f- since last year, but you know, I d- we didn't want to say anything until we were sure. But I did get, uh, I did have a nice meeting with Charles Traub at the MFA Photography, Video, and Related Media Department at the School of Visual Arts, and he uh, he has confirmed with me that we uh, have a home for the photo show now, and that will be in their uh, department's new theater. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's our first sponsor. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh... Expect to hear announcements in the next couple of weeks about how uh, Michael has replaced me with someone more attractive <laughs> and uh, all of that. Now that the sponsorships cut. That's right. Through. Here comes the the money and the women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone with like a real deep, sexy voice. That's you know, right. Like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And like, come on. Like, let's talk about photography. <laughs> but, uh,. But no, I mean, this really is great news, and we'll be doing a combination of, you know, the recordings we have been doing, but also some live presentations, some live recordings uh, on stage. Yeah, no, look, it could be incredible. It's going to be like uh, uh, an NPR show, like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or something, (laughs) where people from the audience are going to yell out at stuff, and uh, we're going to have to respond. Oh, no, we're going to have to have prizes and things. Oh, man, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, no, uh, so that is that is our first real sponsor, and we really uh, appreciate that, and we're very excited about it. Um, the theater is a beautiful space. I think uh, it holds roughly 80 people, um, and then can be opened up to 
even more, up to 100 people. So, yeah, we're going to start uh, thinking about shows that would make sense live as well as, uh, you know, doing our uh, normal recordings. Well, speaking of recordings, uh, we're going to uh, very soon be listening to a conversation we had with Leo Rubenfein and, uh, at his house uh, in downtown Manhattan. For those of you who don't know Leo ahead of time, uh, he's one of these figures that's been around in New York uh, photography scene for decades and uh, most recently uh, not only had shows of his own work internationally and here in New York, but was part of that incredible Gary Winogrand exhibition that traveled the world. So uh, we were very excited to be able to sit down and speak with him. And uh, he's a world traveler. And we uh, it seems like more and more we happen to capture people right when they're have a downtime and we get we sneak in and get them so we're happy to finally be able to release this episode that we uh, recorded a little earlier this summer yeah absolutely and you know the other thing about leo is you know there, there's no website there's no uh social media sites or anything like that but i mean he has um enough of a reputation that if you do a little google on leo rubenfein you will find quite a bit of information um but uh maybe not as many photographs uh, online. So we will post um, a good number of photos with this episode. Yeah, and uh, you should also swing on over to Stephen Kasher Gallery. Their website has some of his work on it. Right, absolutely. We'll link to that. All right, well, enjoy the episode, everyone. And Kai, I'll uh, talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Okay, please, go ahead. It's, it's a good bio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I did modify some stuff around it okay. just to talk about All right. All right, welcome to the photo show. We're here today at Leo Rubenfein's uh, wonderful house, and um, we'll be talking with him. And uh, just as a means of introduction, I'm going to read uh, part of his extensive bio, just a, a section of it. Uh, so Leo Rubenfein's first solo exhibition was held at Castelli Graphics, New York, in 1981, and he has since had solo exhibitions at institutions worldwide, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York, the Corcoran Gallery of Art, Washington, D.C., the National Museum of Art, Tokyo, and the Museum of Contemporary Art, Rome. Among his principal bodies of works are A Map of the East, published by David R. Godin and Thames and Hudson, which explores the character and idiosyncrasies of Japan, China, and Southeast Asia and Wounded Cities, published as a book by Steidel in 2008, which explores the mental wounds that were left by the terror attacks in New York in 2001 and other attacks in cities around the world. I should also mention that we're sitting right now practically in the shadow of where that happened. The Wounded Cities is a thick book which includes photographs, but also a long personal and historical essay uh, by Leo, and uh, writing is also a large part of his practice. So Leo is also known for his writing and scholarship on other photographers through his numerous essays that our listeners will have come across in books like The Education of a Photographer that Charlie Traub, a former guest on the show, put together, or Photography in Print, edited by Vicki Goldberg, both of which include Leo's essay on Gary Winogrand, A Man in the Crowd, a precursor to his lengthy essay in the Winogrand Retrospective Catalog. Uh, the catalog Starburst, Color Photography in America, 1970-1980, published by Hatya Kantz in 2010, um, uh, also has a, an extensive essay by Leo, personal essay about his uh, life in color and color photography, which we'll be talking about. 
Um, and uh, also, you could look for where Deanne Arbus went. That first part in, uh, first appeared in Art in America, but is now up for everyone to read on America Suburb X, the website that often people go to to find such things. Other important essays went along with the two major exhibitions that Leo did with San Francisco MoMA, Museum of Modern Art. First as co-curator of the work of Shomai Tamatsu, which I hope we'll speak about a little bit today. And he was the uh, lead author of the essay in that Shomo Tamatsu, Skin of the Nation, which came out from Yale University Press in 2004. Then from 2010 to 2013, he guest curated the uh, Gary Winogrand retrospective, also at SF MoMA, which appeared first at, in San Francisco and then traveled to Washington, New York, Paris, and Madrid from 2014 to 2015. So uh, this is a lengthy introduction and partially just because I think it's important that uh, everyone gets an idea of who we're speaking with and also that it's going to be impossible in the length of our podcast to go over your entire life and all of the amazing accomplishments you've got. So I thought that'd be a great introduction. We're here as ever with Michael Dalton. And yeah, hi everyone. That's all the time we have for now. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> and uh, please welcome Leo. Thank you. Hi. Thanks. So, so that that is, that's quite a, a bio. I thought maybe... Um, we could start with what you've been doing lately, what you've been doing recently. I mean, you had, you just, uh, it was just last year you had uh, yeah, the one-person show at the Steve, at Stephen Kasher Gallery. Yeah. yeah, I did. I have two uh, large projects going on right now in parallel. One, I began a great deal earlier than the other one. I, I work very slowly. Um, when When Kai said a moment ago, you know, that I produced these two books, Map of the East and Wounded Cities. Of course, that's true. I felt a bit embarrassed by the fact that there are only two, but it doesn't. that doesn't really represent the whole of what I've done. Yeah. Um, I have a major project with the, the tentative, you know, sort of working title, uh, Backroads Through the World City, hmm. which I've been on for years and years and years. And then the, the recent Casher show is a first stab at, what I hope will become a full-scale book on New York. But as I say, I take a long time, and World City has gone on and on. It's still going on. The New York book, which is, you know, still very new in my terms. You know, I might finish it in 10 years or something. Mm -hmm. um, other people do 10 books in, in the same amount of time. Yeah. But I, I do them slowly, and when they're done, uh, they're big, and I hope that they last, at least to me. Uh, for me, they seem to last. Yeah, I, I think that's apparent when you look at the, the, the bodies of work that you've done, both your own work and work you've done on other photographers. These things stay. They last. They travel. Uh, they get republished. They become part of the, the entire, you know, history of photography, in a sense. So... It, I mean, putting that time in, I think, has been paying off. I hope so. So speaking a little bit about the title of that show is The City Beside You, The City Inside You, right? Yeah, not a, a title, honestly, that I'm entirely happy with. I, yeah. I found it very, I'm, I'm bad on titles. It takes me forever mm. to come up with them. And really, I'm only able to, you know, when I'm able to find a good one, it's usually when the project is completely done. And of course, mm. this was... Uh, you know, as I said, just a, a first shot. Mm -hmm. And so that will not be the title at the end of the day, but it was the title of it last fall. For the fall, exhibition, yeah. For the, the purposes of the exhibition. Um, what does it mean? Well, you know, the, that, that project, that book, everything that came, everything that you saw in that show came from New York City. It's, mm -hmm. it's all work that I've done here. It's all work that 
how, how can I put it? I suppose attempts to characterize what New York has been to me over these many, many years I've lived here now. I'm not a native. Yeah, you were born in Chicago. A, right? Well, I was born in Chicago, but that's the least of it. I, mm. I grew up in Tokyo mm. and in California and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm. And New York came along in my life very late when I was in graduate school, not before mm. that. Um, and I've had a, a sort of a love-hate relationship with it all these years, I've never been fully comfortable. I've always felt like I'm living in a hotel room and I'm going to get tossed out any minute. <laughs> and yet I've also found it impossible to leave. So mm. in some sense, I suppose I've become some kind of a New Yorker, one of those many uh, and immigrant New Yorkers who, who come in in the hope of achieving something here, doing something, becoming mm. something here. But it, the experience is mixed, and, and New York is a place that, you know, has always felt terribly harsh to me, and you'll find some of that in the work, mm -hmm. and at the same time full of promise, and you'll find some of that in the work. It, it dangles a, a marvelous, beautiful idea in front of you. You'll find that in the work. Mm. Um, at the same time, you know, a great deal of what it offers is out of reach. And you'll find that in the work as well. Yeah, and, and the work is, is photographed in a way, in the way that you're trying to characterize New York, there's, there's a, a kind of uncomfortable closeness in the portraits that you made on the street in that work. You get very close to the people and close to their faces in the photographs. And there's so there's a, a way to kind of examine the the emotional sort of uh stages or the way people are seen in the photograph uh, but us as a viewer we're we're very close to them right we're very sort of yeah i think yeah. so i mean there are people who photograph you know much closer in than that you mm -hmm. only have to think about dan arbus and mm -hmm. you're inches away rather than mm -hmm. you know in these photographs you know four or five feet away but you know there is an intimacy in them it's an intimacy that i I want, that I'm interested in. I, you know, most of my life in photography, I've photographed in the street. But I, you know, reject emphatically the notion that there is such a thing as street photography. I think that that's much too, you know, broad a category to be of any use to, to anybody at this point. Instead, you know, what makes sense is if you look at all those extraordinarily diverse photographers who've worked in the street. I just think, for example, of you know, the difference between Dido Moriyama and uh, you know, Andre Kertes. The question is not so much did they work in the street or not, but what did they do there? What did they use the street for? You know, the street's only a place. I mean, you know, just like the studio, just like the... Yeah, I think these days uh, <clears throat> that term street photography has actually been reinvented and embraced as this new thing, which is not new as in not what the people were doing who are, we think of historically. Who as, we think of historically. So, but, uh, but people trying to mimic or reproduce what they imagine that work well, was. Well, possibly. I, you know, I'm, I'm out of it enough so that right. I, I'm not even sure who you're talking about, but I believe you. Yeah, people um, on Instagram and uh, And, and like so that. on. But, you know, I am greatly interested all the way through the photography that I've done, and in much of the work that I've, you know, that I really care about that other people have done, I'm very, very interested in how much a, photogra a photograph cannot describe, cannot tell you, and therefore how it becomes a kind of 
transcription of the many reactions that we have um, when we find ourselves surrounded by experience uh, that's mysterious to us in any number of ways, you know, mysterious and and frightening, mysterious and magical, mysterious and whatever. Mm. Um, But the fact is that most of how we understand life, it seems to me, we do in essentially narrative terms. And the moment that you make a photograph, you step outside of that. There's no before, there's no after, there's no story. There are only a, a set of, you know, trivial, normally, quite trivial facts that you can look at mm-hmm. and that imply all sorts of things. So, for example, if you photograph somebody in the street, let's say, uh, a very large part of what you're getting is uh, how you don't know the, who the person is, how you don't know what this person is is thinking. The old conceit, the old idea that there was somehow some sympathy between portraitist and sitter and that you Mm. saw deeply into the character of the other, you know, seems to me to belong to a a very bygone age uh, at this point. Um, So we circulate in a great city. It could be New York. It could be London. It could be Hong Kong. We circulate in a great city surrounded by people whom we don't know, whom we can't know, whom we feel all sorts of momentary twinges of attachment to, but those are evanescent, and in the end we're thrown back on our own solitude. This experience seems to me to be one that photography is beautifully, beautifully suited to evoking, and Mm -hmm. and there is in it, you know, if you want to get very grand, you can say something essential in it about uh, life in the great modern cities, even life in the modern age. Now, would you consider yourself <clears throat> to be, uh, cosmopolitan is not the right word, I guess even like a global citizen in a way. I'm thinking of in wounded cities, for, uh, for example, there are a number of portraits of people where you're jumping continents in between pages or definitely throughout the book, and you wouldn't necessarily know from the background or even costume that these people weren't all neighbors, certainly not all could all be neighbors in a city like New York, right? So is there something about that? You just rattled off those major cities. Is there something about having a having the world be smaller and having this global reach that interests you as a photographer? Well, enormously. Now, you know, maybe it takes a little bit of background. I, I've been working for some years on this project that I, this unfinished project that I call tentatively backroads through the world city. Been working on it for a long time before September 11th of 2001. Mm-hmm. And it emerged from years of traveling I'd done in Asia where I felt that there were places you could come to where the connections between great cities that were very far flung around the world were stronger than the connections between these cities and their own localities. That in Tokyo, Mm -hmm. let's say, not all of Tokyo, but places in Tokyo where you felt more of New York or Hong Kong or London than you did of the region 100 miles outside of Tokyo, Mm -hmm. right? And so you began to imagine that there was such a thing as a world city. It's not a real thing. It's Mm -hmm. an imaginary thing. And yet it's something that we feel. Mm 
very frequently and recognizably as we move through these places. So I became interested in that. I became interested in the notion that you might be able to photograph that, characterize it with pictures, say something about how it felt to you in pictures. And I got a good deal of the way along with it, of course, at the same time, complicating life for myself by turning it into a major writing project as well. Mm. And then uh, uh, September 11th happened, and my immediate reaction was, I can't go on with this. Um, you know, clearly the, the globalized, globalizing world I thought I understood something about was at, you know, that, the fact of it was at the heart of what happened here, right outside this apartment, mm -hmm. but it was not at all what I imagined should be happening or could be happening. And so suddenly I, I was overcome by a sense of my own ignorance. I thought, I'll never be able to finish this project. It has to stop. Mm -hmm. um, it was at that point that I went on and, and began the book, Wounded Cities, not immediately, but mm -hmm. soon after. And then eventually um, I was able to return to the original project. I think by virtue of having gone through the, the project Wounded Cities, having mm. in some way learned enough about how troubled our global city is at the same time that it seems so promising, so beneficent, bountiful, and so on. And so I did ultimately go back. Mm. I think that, you know, I myself, um, you know, grew up in, in circumstances, I, as I said, I was um, to some extent a, an expatriate child. Mm. Um, I traveled the world a lot with my family when I was young. I've done so ever since. I've been in 70 or more countries, not all of them to photograph, but most probably. Mm -hmm. I have strong friendships in places all around the world. There is to me in the notion that one can belong to um, something larger than one's own native city or country, mm. a tremendous promise of freedom. And it's something that I, I celebrate and, and, and cherish. And so I think that that's somewhere near the root of all these projects. If, if anyone wanted to say, you know, what do they have to do with each other? Well, go back to that. Mm -hmm. as the source from which they, they all emerge. That, that's what I was going to ask. When you, when you then sort of, I don't know if you would think of it as a, a branch of the larger project, Wounded, wounded Cities, or a, a, a slightly tighter focus on something more specific when you did Wounded Cities from this larger project? I think Wounded Cities was a digression from the larger project oh, okay. and one that dealt specifically with you know, the, the terror era. and the I, it, It's probably worth saying a, a tiny bit about what that book consists of for people who, yeah, who haven't seen it. Yes, the, the book's a, a book of photographs and text in equal parts. Um, the photographs all come from cities that were struck by terror attacks around the time of the September 11th attack, meaning, you know, from there on until, oh, six or seven years after, and, and perhaps going back in time four or five, six years before it. There are cities in all parts of the world, Africa, South America, uh, United States, of course, uh, Europe, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and so on. And uh, all of them are photographs of people. None of those people are victims, as far as I know, 
of attacks. Uh, they're all ordinary people. They're like you and me. In that sense, however, they're all potential victims because any one of us, you can walk right outside the door of this building and you know, find yourself blown to bits on, on any day. And that's true in far more cities than I can even count and far, far more than I ever went to. But even a, there might even be a sense of a, a second, third degree trauma in a way, right? I mean, you don't have to be a direct victim of Well, the, I think that's very right? much so. So right. I think that in fact, you know, at, at the time of the attacks, I mean, the first thing that, that being here, experiencing the attacks made me feel was, I don't know how to respond to this at all. Now, there were people who rushed right away over to the World Trade Center and, and photographed there on the site. And there were also people who came up to visit me and said, uh, you know, that they wanted to photograph from the roof here, looking into the Trade Center. I myself felt that you didn't learn very much from doing that, that essentially what you were looking at was a landscape of war, which we've seen over and over and over again, um, you know, both in, in journalism and in, in fiction. I mean, my whole life long, we've, I, you know, I, as we left here on the day of the attacks, I felt that we were like, you know, slung with bags and all that and covered with dust. We were the refugees we'd seen in some war movie. Uh, you know, we were fiction reconstituted as life uh, at that moment. Um, but it, see, it did seem to me that, the, um, that what really characterized the event was not even the physical wound so much as a, a certain psychic or psychological wound, um, which resulted from the fact that we had believed we were not at war. We had believed we were at peace. And all of a sudden, somebody had come along and said, no, you're not at peace, you're at war. And in fact, you've been at war for years, and it's only your own ignorance or stupidity or whatever that protects you from that fact that's obvious to all the rest of us. So wake up, right? Now, you know, that in itself is is traumatic and produces the secondary effect that you talked about. But there's even perhaps a tertiary effect because the next thing that happens is you discover that that psychic wound, uh, you know, produces among the large collectivity to which you belong, your, your country, your society, produces certain things, produces an invasion of Iraq, produces, you know, the resort to torture, produces the political playing upon people's fears for the sake of, of, of political advantage. Willingness um, to give up your own privacy. All these things, and, and on and on and on. And so, in fact, the psychic wound, if you call it that, um, is actually profound and, and at the source of many, many subsequent phenomenon that are a lot bigger than simply the pure destruction of war. It's not as clean, in a way as the pure destruction of, of war, but it gets very, very murky. So uh, the book Wounded Cities consists of these photographs, and then it also consists of a, an extended text. Uh, the, the, they're literally 50-50 in the book, and they're woven together. The photographs never illustrate the text, and the text never talks about the photographs, but the text tries to ask similar questions to those the photographs do, except in those regions that a photograph can't approach, meaning what happened, what will happen next, who said what, who did what, who was thinking what, to what degree can we know uh, that that's the truth or that it's not the truth, and so on and so forth. And so the two, the, the two pieces of work intertwine with each other 
in a very interesting way in that book, and they become a single piece of work. I don't think you could pull... I mean, there have been plenty of shows of the photographs, mm. and they stand alone just fine in shows. But I think if you did a book of them alone, you'd probably wonder why they're here. And if you did a, a book of the text alone, you might wonder the same thing. But together, they achieve the solidity of a whole book. Yeah, and, and so what I was... um trying to get to uh, in a very clumsily way, I think, <laughs> was when, when you did Wounded Cities and you photographed other Wounded Cities, did that help inform and clarify the larger project in terms of how cities are interconnected, how people in these spaces um, do share s some similarities in the way they live their lives? I don't know about that. If anything, I, I feel that, you know, it's funny. I think in a practical sense, you know, the cities that collectively make up, let's call it the, the world city, in a practical sense, are even more connected today than they were before 2001. But I think the feeling of isolation within your own place has probably increased. There are whole areas of the world that have become quite isolated, very dangerous, you know, mm -hmm. at war, contested. There are other places which seemed a good deal more open then than, uh, than they are today. Russia, for example, which has, you know, gone into a sort of a, a xenophobic nightmare of its own. Uh, you know, China, which remains quite open, but very uneasily so, um, and so on and so forth. So in, in a certain way, these, uh, even at the same time that, you know, I made you know, the sense of, of globality and the romantic idealism that I associate with that, even though I made that the center of my own project, these have been years of reaction against it. Uh, I mean, what was the September 11th attack except a reaction against? Um, and we've seen them in, we've seen reactions like that in, in all sorts of ways, right up to the present, even in our own one of our own presidential candidates right now, even in the, hmm. the British vote that's coming up in yeah. a couple of days, right? Absolutely. So it's not a world, it, it is a world that's, that's globalizing more and more rapidly, and it often seems that in direct proportion to that is experiencing more and more uneasy, uh, unease with that, mm. right? Yes, yes. Um, and, and I would say that to the extent that I've you know, managed to sort of grasp that, that's what's enabled me to go back to you know, to the, the big, the bigger long project. running project. Yeah. Well, one thing, and I know, um, I asked you about this when we were, when the show was up and, uh, I brought a group of students to this see This is the New York show. Yes. The yeah. New York show. When we brought the students to see it, uh, at Casher gallery just last fall, there's one, uh, individual, this, uh, businessman for lack of better description, I'm pretty sure a man in a suit, who appears both in Wounded Cities mm. and in this exhibition, yeah. <laughs> but in two very different, like, in one he looks more troubled than the other, That's I'd right. say, right? Yeah. Yeah. So That's is right. that part of, I, I assume that must have been this conscious decision to, to yeah, have Yeah, it's something that other people do. I mean, there's certainly any number of photographers who have, you know, used two photographs from the, the same uh, incident or the same you know, shooting in different contexts or sometimes even in the same, the same book or, yeah. or whatever. I, I've generally been very averse to doing that. There's something to me that, that you know, I, I can't explain why exactly, but mm. I don't want to do that. You know, my assumption is, is always that one is going to be significantly enough better than the other so that you have no right to use the, the weaker one. Mm. 
In this case, neither of them seemed weak, but they did seem very different. Yeah, and different. and the one that appears in Wounded Cities does seem to be about fear. And, mm. and in fact, he's looking directly at me, that old man. Mm. And he's even afraid of me at that moment, although it becomes a kind of generalized fear. The other photograph, the one that's in the, the New York show, seems to me to have less to do with fear and more to do with frailty and old age. Yeah, I'd agree. And... and you know, those are the qualities that he really displays, that sense that, you know, there are people in this city who have been here too long and whom it's weighed down so hard that, you know, by now they're, they're finding it hard to hold themselves up. And, and he seems to me to, to embody some of that in that picture. So you're right, it's the same man, but... Uh, two very different But two very yeah. different things, and yeah. within literally, you know seconds or even milliseconds of, of each other, extraordinarily how fast the, the human face changes. Right. You know, and what different things it tells us at, at different moments. Another thing I thought was interesting about that exhibition is I think I had lunch with you and Tom at the, the burrito place, for lack of the proper name of the place. And West, West Side Cafe. West Side Cafe, or <laughs> coffee shop, I think, actually. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, you were, you knew, you had a date or a, pretty firm date coming up. You knew when the exhibition was coming up, but you you were just sort of beginning or thinking to think about a lot of the work you wanted to make for the show. So it was this instance, I think, in a different way of working for you where you were going to be making work for an exhibition that you right. knew was coming up. That's true. And, and you were going to be shooting it with uh, this new camera. Too, with the new with. camera. The new camera turned out not to be such a a big problem. It, it didn't take me a long time to get used to it. I think it, it was as good a choice for what it was as, as there was available to make at that moment, the camera, I mean. Yeah. I don't like working with a deadline like that. Yeah, because we started off this conversation, you're talking about working slowly and building yes. up. And then so, you had like, I, it was less than a calendar year, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, uh, half a year at, at the most. Although yeah. a few of the pictures, the ones that had sort of pointed in the direction of, of all the others, were several years old. Yeah, there was so, a mix in the show. So there was that. Yeah. But the majority of them were done in the six months before the, uh, the show went up, mm -hmm. or, or nine months before the show went up. I don't like to do that. I know that painters do it all the time. Yeah. I know that musicians do it all the time. Definitely, if you're in the theater or film, you, you can't help it. Yeah. And, and writing, I've had to do it. You have a deadline, and you, you have mm -hmm. to produce your text in, in time for your deadline. Right. Um, in general, the way I've photographed, that's not been the case. I, I don't, for the most part, work on I never really work on assignment or, or anything like that. So, um, so for me, this was new, and you know, I accepted it. But it's not the way I I would normally like to do things. And did um, you continue to make the, those type of photographs after the show opened, or was it like this push to to get to this point and then? Well, right after the show opened, I uh, immediately after the show opened, the first thing I did was go on a, a trip to photograph for World City, which mm -hmm. I had set aside for pretty much the whole year okay. while I was working on the, the New York thing. And then after that, I, I was overtaken by events in my family life, right. and personal life, and, and so 
I, I didn't do very much. When I do go back to photographing in New York, though, it'll continue directly out of that show. It's right. you know, and I'll probably discard a, a third of what's in the show and add more, and then discard some of that and add more, and you know, that's how the process has always worked for me. I think that the notion that you that there is such a thing as uh, uh, a good picture, which you know, exists autonomously all mm -hmm. by itself is kind of dubious to me. I think that that really if you're aiming to put together a book or a show, the pictures contribute to the meanings of each other. They build the meanings of each other. And, and in a very, you know, in a book where the, the connections are done in a very sophisticated way, you see this happening over and over again. So you see Robert Frank and the Americans put the covered car, you know, next to the covered corpses beside, you know, beside the highway. And all of a sudden, each picture means something that it couldn't have meant mm -hmm. had you seen it in another context or, uh, you know, had you seen it all by itself. And in the books that I've done, in the shows I've done to some degree, but above all in the books that I've done, those connections are terribly important, which means that you don't really know what any of the photographs is going to mean or what it's going to be about until you have the others. Right. And, and each one of them is instructing you about the others. This is, this is part of why when people say, well, you know, uh, you know, hasn't digital photography changed everything in that you can see your results immediately? Mm. You know, I say ridiculous. Who said you can see your results immediately? You can see something on a screen, yeah. but do you understand what your results are? No, that takes a long time. And, and in fact, it takes uh, the arrival of other pictures that you put next to the one you got and you know, surround it with. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for taking a long time to do your work in photography because the work does, you know, deepen. You understand it better. You're able to find meanings in it that you didn't know were there. And yeah, in fact, you, it's part of You change of what, and you get informed. And by they change things. and you learn new things. And in yeah. fact, this is part of why, you know, older photographers, people who come to their 70s and 80s, you find them going back and mining all this work that they did 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm. And, and sometimes they overmine it and they publish every <laughs> bad picture they've ever made. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as likely as not, they also find a, a fair number of really marvelous photographs that, uh, that they could not have seen as such at the time when they made them. Yeah, I'm, right? only, I'm only starting to... Uh, understand and experience that now, uh, revisiting photographs I made in the late 80s, early 90s, in and around New York City, yeah. and thinking, I, I never thought much of this work, and now I'm looking at it thinking, there's actually, there might be something here. Right. But, yeah, it, and, right. And, that, and I've heard people say that for many, many years. You know, you, you, uh, you'll, you'll change what you think is good later on. You'll, That's and, right, and there are, many, there are many reasons why. My first book was called A Map of the East, and for some reason I no longer remember um, at the time when the book was was in publication, it was decided by somebody that there would be 107 photographs in the book. Well, the book represented work I had done traveling around Asia over a period of seven or eight years. And so a huge amount was left out. And I edited that book so conscientiously, you know, with a, a microscope. But years later, felt that Oh my God, there were so many pictures that I thought were, were 
insufficient in some way, which it was insane to leave out. You know, they were so they were so rich. And so, in fact, I ended up doing a, a limited edition book a couple of years ago called New Turns in Old Roads, which is made entirely of pictures that were left out of the original map of the East. But I think in many cases, you know, they they could have gone in and replaced something that's in the original book mm. and made the original book better. But that's what I think today. Right, so, right. Yeah. Changed right. my mind again in another 10 years. Um, <laughs> and that's a limited edition book, as I yeah, recall, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it well, is. It sounds like it's time for another limited edition. <laughs> yeah. Or unlimited. Um, just to jump gears completely, since we've yeah. been speaking mostly about work very recently, I don't want to leave, despite all your accomplishments that I read off in the bio, I don't want to leave off some of the just the basic stuff of, here you are, born in Chicago, now you're living this expat life. What led to picking up the camera in the first place? You know, I, it's a very good question, and I've tried and tried to answer that, and, and I don't have a good answer for it. I, I can give you a neat story, mm. and I can tell you that, um, you know, I, I went to live as a child, not a baby, but a, a child, uh, nine years old in, in Tokyo in 1963, and I was taken there by my parents. I had nothing to say about it. I, I didn't choose to go at the yeah. age of nine. You enter a world in which you understand almost nothing. Um, you can't speak the language. You perhaps learn to speak the language after a while, but you can't read either. And even when you can read and even when you can speak, everything represents something different from what you expected, right, or expect. And I think that you find yourself, especially, you know, for as long as you're without language, you find yourself enormously dependent on your eyes, mm. right? On what you see. You try to Picking understand clues, yeah. You try to understand what the world means by, uh, you know, by searching it, by reading it const constantly. Now, you know, I could say that, you know, that, whole process has continued for me, you know, right into photography and through photography all these years, and that's true. But does it explain the fact that I, I took up photography and never left it? By itself, it doesn't. And, and I don't know what does. You know, there are people, I think that these, you know, if you have any instinctive sense, intuitive sense, that you want to work in some way in the arts, in one of the arts, right? The choice of medium that you make is not altogether a conscious choice. In fact, it's probably, for the most part, not a conscious choice at all. We all practice all the media when we're little, right? We yeah. all tell stories, we all act in plays, we all make paintings, we all sing, we all play an instrument, we all do all those things. And over time, we, we give them up. And, you know, by... Uh, by adulthood, most adults have given up all of them. A very few people have stayed with it, you know, the people who become professional artists. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they stay with a single one. They don't stay with more than one, some with two. You'll find a few people who, you know, paint, paint and also make films, uh, photograph and also write. But these people are unusual. Any one medium is extraordinarily demanding. And if you do two, you always feel like you're, you, you work in two, you always feel like you're cheating one for the sake yeah, of the other. Yeah, and then cheating the other mm -hmm. one for the sake of the one. And, right, yeah. and, and that troubles you greatly as well. So, but why do you make the choice that you make? Why is it that for the architect, the sense of being in space is so elemental and, 
and so important that this person says, of course, I was going to be an architect, not a filmmaker. Mm. Why is it that for, uh, you know, for the violinist, the sound of the human voice, the sound of the song is, is so important? Mm. Or for the poet, the sound of the song, of the voice, of, of words is so important that you're going to be a poet, you're not going to be a prose writer, right? Why does one person choose one and one choose another? I don't know. I don't know. What's elemental in photography in the sense that the experience of spaces, in, in architecture, that the, the, the sense of the voices in, in poetry or some music, certainly in singing, I don't know an answer to that that I can stand by 100%, but I would say that it has something to do with seeing in the world a plethora of facts that are unexplainable the sense of being surrounded by a mass of information that's beyond explanation has a kind of intrinsic poetry in it that all these different photographers over so many years have, have managed to find different ways to exploit. Why is one person drawn to that and not another? I don't know. So then, because you, you didn't start out in New York, and who were your people early on? Who were the photographers that influenced you? When I was in high school, <laughs> I had uh, two friends in the, the, the gang of boys I hung around with who were quite talented photographers. One was uh, uh, a Chinese-American guy from Hong Kong, and the other was an American guy from North Carolina, maybe. And these were the, the high years, the climactic years of the 1960s in Tokyo. The city was erupting the way that New York was and San Francisco was and Paris was and so on and so forth. And they would go out every weekend and photograph like crazy. And by Sunday night, they would end up in their darkroom. They'd make a lot of prints in the manner of those years, the, of the, the Japanese photographer's prints of those years, which means trimmed to the edges and glossy, uh, you dried on a, a ferrotype plate. Very glossy, yeah. <laughs> uh, rich and beautiful, intense black and white and so on. And they'd bring them in. And all of us would gather around the, uh, the lockers in the central hall of my high school to see what these guys brought in each week because they were really giving our world back to us, mm. you know, as much as if they had written it into a song and were sitting down and on the floor and playing it on their, their guitars. They, they also brought in books. So I saw Cartier-Bresson for the first time then. Uh, I saw Bressailles for the first time then. I saw, I think I, I certainly saw Ansel Adams for the first time then, maybe Harry Callahan. Hmm. I also saw, without knowing who they were, the great Japanese photographers of the era because these guys were also bringing in the famous photographic magazines of those days. So these were the magazines in which Tomatsu and Moriyama and Fukase and... Uh, Takanashi and, you know, all of the others were publishing literally every month, right. relentlessly publishing. So I saw that work. I, I think it probably all looked the same to me, but I loved it. I, I didn't know whose was whose, and the names didn't mean much to me. Later, they meant a lot. Right. So certainly by the time I was in high school, I was seeing a lot of photography. Uh, there was also a, a very sophisticated show that was sent to... Uh, the Osaka World Ex Exposition in 1970. It was in the American, right at the front of the American Pavilion. You walked in and there it was. Who put this show together? John Sharkovsky. <laughs> Who was in the show? Deanne Arbus, Lee Freelander, Gary Winogrand, <laughs> Ansel Adams, Harry Callahan. 
I can't tell you all of them, but there were 10 of them, I think. <laughs> wow. and, and so that was also a sort of an introduction. And so a, a year later, I was in college in the United States, and uh, it didn't seem unnatural to borrow a camera and begin to photograph. Uh, the, the more surprising thing is I never stopped. Yeah, so John's name comes up again. Um, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting. That, and that was your first exposure to those photographers? To some of them, not to all okay, of them. Yeah. Bruce Davidson was in that show oh. as well. Um, so certainly some of them I'd have been, I, you know, there's no way, because we'd been living in Japan, no way I'd have seen uh, right. Grand Friedlander or Arbus. Ansel Adams I'd have seen along the way was somewhere. This, was this after New Documents? Yeah, oh, it yeah. was 1970, documents. and right. New Documents okay. was 1967. Right. Yeah, but I was away for almost all of that interval. Right. So how we, and there was no New Documents book. How would you have known yeah. about right. any of those people? Right. Right. I know. I heard Sandy Phillips uh, give a talk at Japan Society, and she talked a little bit about how maybe it was in response to that show, but and uh, I think uh, Provoke magazine or one of them like dedicated three issues just to Winogrand and Friedlander. At one point, because they were just like so blown away by. That's interesting. By I don't work. know about that. I, I'm 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 a little surprised because there were only three issues of Provoke, as far as oh, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Oh well. Uh, so I think so that's where the number talk, three comes from. Maybe she was talking about that those three issues were in response to seeing their. But work. I'd be really surprised if they were, because I think that their work was barely known at at that stage, and mm. and not much, not very highly thought of by the Japanese photographers. Yet they yeah. they were much more focused on uh, people like William Klein. Well, she's, she. I remember her saying that the, at least the Japanese photographers that she'd spoken to were really turned of, off so by that, William Klein. That they thought he was like this arrogant, you know, guy coming in there. And oh, well, they, he may indeed have been arrogant. I mean, every I've never met him, but yeah. you know, it's not the only time I've heard that. Yeah. But on the other hand, he was much more widely published yeah. in Japan oh, yeah, than sure. any of the others. And right. and you know, I, I would say in the 1960s. The photographers, the Japanese, the American photographers, the Japanese would have known best, would have seen the most of, uh, would have been Eugene Smith, William Klein, Richard Avedon, maybe Irving Penn, maybe Robert Kappa. Uh, so the magazine. The, the mag magazine, yeah. I mean, that was yeah. it, yeah. you know, throughout the 60s. And there was even a, you know, a, a further time lag um, you know, between what was known in Japan and what was known here. Yeah. So you come back to the U.S. and you're you get out of college, and then you move to. Well, New no, no. I, I came to the, back to the U.S. to go to college. Right. It was a moment when, in my memory of it, uh, this country was in a state of deep distress, and you know I hadn't been away for the whole of the '60s. I'd been away early on, come back, gone away again, come back again. But it did, I suppose, you know, give me a, a sort of accelerated sense of the passage of time and of how things had changed. Mm -hmm. And there was a very striking sense of, by 1970 when I came back, of the almost complete disintegration of the idealism with which, uh, in my childhood, the decade had begun. And which had been, you know, reaffirmed in a sort of inverted way in the more idealistic 
years of the anti-Vietnam War movement and so on, 1966, 67. By the time you got to 1970, nobody knew what had become of this country or what was becoming of it, which I took very hard at that point. And, and I think because in those years, the 60s, which I had spent in Japan, um, I had felt I mean, people. There are people who will take issue with this, but I, I believe that I felt around me a society that was thriving, a society that had destroyed itself a, a quarter century before, but that was full of optimism and and uh, full of a sense of growth, sense of possibility, and so for me that whole period of childhood set. The United States is a rather dark place against the Asian world, which was a bright one. They were very unlike each other. And coming back to this country, I felt that I knew something, having been in Asia, that people didn't know here. Which you might feel in any case, simply because you've been to a place that was different and you spoke a different language now and all of that, but it went deeper than that. It was... Uh, knowing a different way of feeling, knowing that it was possible to imagine different outcomes from what everybody was expecting here in 1970, which was pretty ghastly. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, there's going to be culture shock whenever you travel. There's a, there's the possibility of it, but it's very different if you spent many years in, in living in another culture and formative years, and then well, it's not and then just going that. It, it was you know, in the states, those years were a time of tremendous upheaval. Uh, even, uh, you know, you people like to say then a time of revolution, which seemed hyperbolic afterwards, but there were some respects in which that's not completely untrue. It was certainly a period of vast disillusionment, uh, a, a period that ended in great hopelessness, in cynicism, nihilism, and so on and so forth. And so, we, and, and of course, you know, what I'd seen in Japan was not that. There was some of that, but there was not very much of that mm -hmm. compared to what you had here. So it was not simply a disjunction between, you know, two cultures or two places. It was a kind of disjunction in time and a, a psychological disjunction as well. That's, that's so interesting because the kind of photo art world understanding of that period is the... the the mistrust and darkness of that time here in the United States also opened up the door a bit to those Japanese photographers who were you know, post-World War II, post-atomic bomb, post-American industrialization, had that sort of um, darkness and uh, macabre in their photography as well. And, that, and photographers here became more aware of them at that time. Is that a, just a kind of a myth? Kind well, of I, I think it's actually a lot more complicated than that. In the mm -hmm. first place, that's compressing the history. Sure, of it. absolutely. It, you absolutely. know, hugely. So yes, yes. I, when I was working on Map of the East... Um, I got to know Tomatsu a little bit in Japan. I, I wanted to meet him. Sharkovsky had done that show, New Japanese Photography, here in New York in 1974. Tomatsu had the largest part in it, and he, he came out, you know, by far the strongest person in that show. So I went to Japan in 83, and I thought I'd like to find this man. Mm -hmm. Now, the New Japanese Photography show 
I don't think people were terribly interested in it here. Um, the most sophisticated photographer I knew in those days was Gary Winogrand. I went to that show with him. He hated it. He said, this is nonsense. This is terrible. Why are they showing this? <laughs> he didn't get it at all. I said, based on having lived in Japan, known something about Japan, well, wait a minute, there's more to it than you think. Um, and, you know, being Winogrand, he said in his characteristic way. No, there isn't. You know? <laughs> uh, right? End of story. So that was that. Now, then I came back. Then I went to, uh, to, to Japan. I went to Asia to do the book Map of the East. I lived over there for a couple of years with a, a Guggenheim Fellowship and did the book. And when I came back, I began to tell a few curators I knew here, you really need to do a show of, of Tomatsu. There was almost zero interest. I, I mean, none. Eventually, Sandy Phillips came around to doing a, a show of Moriyama's work. Now, all this gets complicated, and it's, it's of no interest. But the idea was, you know, even on her part, that Tomasa would show first here. It turned out not to happen. Mm. Moriyama was shown. She did her show of Moriyama in 1999, okay? And it turned out that that was a big hit. And so then it, it seemed obvious to go ahead and do the Tomasa show, which I did for her in uh, 2003-04. But uh, 99 is what? You know, 30 years later than the late 60s. I, I don't think that the late, late 60s produced any immediate interest mm. in Japanese photography on the part of Americans. I think they couldn't care less about it. I think as far as the, the darkness of the Japanese photographers go, that's very real. Uh, that's absolutely real. But I think that it was far less representative of how the society as a whole felt than even Arbus, Winogrand, Friedlander were here in the United States. You know, they were probably much more in sync with the, the larger world that surrounded them. These Japanese photographers in those days were very way out bohemians. In the end, it seemed that they were telling great truths about their country and their time, but it took a long time for people to come around to that. That's just fascinating to hear. Makes sense. So just to switch gears a little bit um, and talk a little bit about your writing, so you, you come to college in 1970, so I assume you graduated in 74? Graduated in 74. I was a bit young. I, I was in such a hurry to get back here to... Uh, participate in the quote-unquote 1960s. Summer of Love. <laughs> well, no, Summer of Love was 1967, and I didn't return until 1970. But, uh, but, but no, it seemed some of like remained. everything that was exciting was happening here, which is nonsense, but that's how it seemed if you were 16 years old. Yeah. And so I, I jumped a year of high school, graduated a year early, came back to the States, and, and began college too early at, uh, in uh, 1970. So then by 74 years. So 74, I graduated. I, I then, you know, being uh, forever in, in a ridiculous hurry, went straight to grad school, um, went to the Yale program, very end of uh, Walker Evans's life, and I imagined that I would have some contact with him there. And I actually did have a little bit, but it wasn't terribly happy, and, mm. and there wasn't very much of it either because he was really very sick and he died in the my second semester there. Yeah. Nonetheless, I I have a, you know, first-hand sense of him and I'm glad that I do. 
it was in my second year of grad school that I began writing. And, and really, you know, it was, well, I was greatly interested in it, but it was also a job in the sense that you might come to New York and drive a taxi or wait tables. I came to New York and I wrote reviews for Art Forum and Art in America and the Village Voice and whoever else would have yeah, me. Yeah, so I was going to say, it's like two years uh, later and all of a sudden these articles are And so I, well, you had 77. to write a lot of them because they paid you about $3 a piece. <laughs> so, you know, you had, to, you had to pump them out, and uh, which actually is very good training because... Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're looking at your work constantly, and you're, uh, uh, you know, you're unhappy with it constantly. You're constantly trying to improve it, and you're working on deadline and so on and so forth. So, as as training in writing, uh, you know, it was good. I felt that it had taken me over to too great a degree, and so after a very short time, I stopped cold and didn't do any more of it. Um, I mean, after only two years, but in those two years, I'd published 150 short pieces or mm. something like that. And I did no writing after that other than grant applications, film scripts, letters, you know, uh, diary entries and so on until the very end of the 90s, so really for about another 20 years. And then I began again. I did a number of critical pieces, which included the, the Arbus essay you mentioned, um, I did the big curatorial jobs on Tomatsu and uh, and on Winogrand, but at this point, I really have have stopped writing any criticism, and I'm much more interested in writing about life, uh, which you see in the book Wounded Cities. And so, to the extent I'm doing any writing now, it's it's essays about experience. I'm not writing fiction. I I don't really claim to know how to do that, but I do think that I, you know, I'm self-taught as a writer. I mean, I never took a class with anybody. I, uh, I wrote a lot of things that were bad enough so that even <laughs> I could see it along the way, and then gradually they got better. There is a sense in which I was taught how to write by photography, and that has to do with how photography, you know, does... Uh, direct you to find the evocative or let's even say the symbolic detail, the detail that reaches, the, the physical fact that reaches beyond itself, that's not just a simple fact in the world, another dull name in the phone book, but that, uh, that speaks for more than just itself. And photography will teach you that. And then, of course, photography will also teach you all the things that it can't do. And so then in your writing, if you're drawn that way, you will um, uh, attempt to uh, do some of the things that photography can't do. Uh, for years, if you had said to me, well, are you a photographer and a, a writer? I would have said, no, I'm a photographer. Mm. And uh, if you then said, well, wait a minute, but you've done all this writing, and I, I would say, I'd have said, well, really, there's not all that much of it, number one. And number two, a lot of it was, you know, essentially commercial work. It was done as a, a job. And number three, you know, great writing is such a monumental achievement. I can't compare myself in any sense to that. But I think my ambitions in writing have grown. And I think that 
you know, today with some hesitation, I'll, I'll call myself a photographer and some sort of essayist. Or well, well what, does the Winogrand, uh, Arbus, and Tomatsu work fall under what you consider commercial in a sense, or is that? Or do you think of that as something else? Something well, between I, I, writing and well, photography. Well, I think all three of those and and a number of the others, the essay mm-hmm. I did on Evans, the right. essay I did on Adams, right. uh, Moriyama, August Sander. Right. You know, I put a pieces. lot into those. I, I right. put a lot of myself into them. So, so I, was, I, yeah. I would not call them just jobs. Yeah. But, right. uh, you know, they're, they're somewhere in between. I mean, I, I wouldn't have done them if they weren't a form of employment. And you wouldn't have done them if you didn't think of yourself as a photographer, I think. And I wouldn't right? have done them. Well, I, certainly the critical essays, the big critical essays, yeah. I very much did at a certain point um, in an effort to teach myself what it was that I found compelling in the work of those people because I had been brought up, I think, in photography in a sort of intellectual framework that I came to to dislike and came to disown, that I was unhappy with. And yet it had provided the vocabulary, the only vocabulary that I had for talking about photographs. So I had to go and invent a new one and, and try to find a way to say, this photograph by August Sander affects me very strongly. What is it? Why? Why does it do that to me? How can I find words to describe the experience I'm having as I sit here looking at that photograph? I, I found, paradoxically, there was a reluctance that was in, in many ways admirable to say too much about what photographs meant. They didn't want to say it. Winogrand would even go so far as to say they don't mean anything. Sharkovsky would say they mean something, but don't listen to what any photographer says about what they mean. <laughs> so I, you know, undertook those essays really, first of all, as a kind of self-education, but at the same time, they were a job. Yeah, I think now I'm glad you're coming around to embracing that part because there's which, are, which part? The part of saying, yes, I'm also a writer. I'm also someone who articulates stuff about these things because there are very few. I mean, of course, John Tchaikovsky, photographer, then all those, all that great writing. You know, there's, uh, from Aperture and stuff, we've got those Robert Adams books, but there's not a lot of... There's not a lot. On the other hand, we do have a wonderful little sub-subculture in mm-hmm. photography. You know, Tchaikovsky and Adams are, are both part of it. But there were others. Deanne Arbus was a magnificent writer. Um, she never published a word in her life or, you know, maybe three words, but that was it. Uh, I mean, most of it was in her, her letters, her diaries, or her, you know, various uh, statements to herself and so on. But those, some of that has been published now, as you know, in, yeah. by Dune Arbus, her daughter, who's edited and collected part of it. I, I don't know how much more there is. There might be much more. I don't think anyone uh, outside the the close Arbus family circle knows what there really is. But she was super. She was a marvelous writer. So so there was she. Moriyama was a terrific writer as well. Mm-hmm. Walker Evans was a splendid writer. I, I don't know how much he produced either, but he was terrific. Yeah, so we have this. And in fact, you know, there's that famous statement from, I think, Clement Greenberg, photography is the most literary of the visual arts, which is a very interesting and and sort of continually fascinating uh, reflection. What does it mean? 
how can photography be the most literary of visual arts? I, I don't know. I don't want to go very far into that right now. But certainly there are a number of people who have felt that it's not the strangest thing in the world to work in both. Um, and there are probably many more people than I've named and many more than I know who were good at both. So in, in some sense, I belong to that. I mean, that, that's clear enough. I do think that for many, many years, and this is now relaxed somewhat in recent times, but for many, many years there was the sense that if you weren't purely devoted to a single medium, you weren't real. You know, mm. you, you, if you were also writing, you couldn't be a real photographer. If you were also photographing, you couldn't be a real writer. I think that's changed over time, and, and people are more liberal about it, but I had to fight that off for years. Mm. And, and so there's, there's probably a part of me that's still defensive about it. Yeah, and, and so when you say, I'm glad you've come around to, <laughs> to, to owning this other side of your life, well, all right, I'll, I'll own it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, well, look, we were just at the Whitney where uh, Arthur Lubau has that new book out about yeah. the biography of Dean yeah. Arbus. And, you know, I, I imagine that he probably could have Picked, you know, he could have. There's many photographers in New York. There's photographers living in New York who knew her. There's many people could have reached out to to be on that two-person uh, panel to discuss and have a slideshow. But he reached out for someone that he knew had already written about. Dan, well, sure, yeah. and also yeah. someone that he knew could probably speak articulately, not just get up there on the stage and go, "Oh yeah, I liked her. I liked her work." Yeah. You know? So yeah. there is that that side of it. Like there's a, and of course the you know if anyone. If anyone but, gets know, the Kai, Winnig- I mean, if anyone it, gets the Winogrand book, that essay is yeah. is is in depth and long. It's not just a, a casual catalog no, 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 essay. No, no, like, it's a piece of work. Yeah, but so. um, I mean, in the good sense, a piece of work. Yes, not, not, what a piece of work. But uh, <laughs> no, it is a, a piece of real work. I, I, you know, on the other hand, if you think about it, right, and and this this troubles me, and I don't know, maybe you guys have something to say about it. Mm. Nobody thinks twice about the idea that a poet might write reviews of poetry or a novelist write reviews of novels, right? Nobody thinks twice if a film director writes an essay about film or an architect writes an essay about architecture. Very few musicians are able to write, but when one comes along, nobody thinks twice about it. Painters are generally a pretty inarticulate bunch, but some of them can write as well, and you know, there it's been fine. a good number of treaties written by treatises painters. Treatises, written by, yes. by painters. There have been, and they tend to read like treatises too, which means yes. you read three pages and you want to stop. <laughs> but, uh, but there is an expectation, I always feel, and, and you know, please oppose me if you, you think I'm wrong because you'll, you'll, you'll make me feel better about it. But I think people expect photographers to be stupid. I think it's expected. I think it's assumed. I think, you know, it's part of photography as the bastard of the arts. Yeah, you push it, the button. It's the guy you can push, push the a button. button. Yeah. You're just responding. There's no perception. There's no insight. There's no, right. no art in it. You know that all those photographers who cross over into the, the high-priced end of the art world immediately take pains to say, I'm an artist, I'm not a photographer. Of course. Right? So the distinction persists whether or not it's it's meaningful. You know, I, I resist all of that. I mean, I love the photographic image. Look, I love painting as well, but 
I don't think I've ever loved it enough to do it, to, to make the time and to make the effort to go and attempt it. Never. I've never made a painting. Yeah, I, think, I think it's all kind of locked into history a little bit. And it's, it's changed. I don't think that's as true uh, as it used to be. But there is still a, um, a thread or a, str- a stream of photography that's where there's a, a kind of pride in being from the street as well as being on the street, you know, as, as uneducated in a sense, you know, in, uh, in the way you approach photography. That's sort of a street tough with yes. a camera. Yeah, well, street, you couldn't get yeah. farther, yeah. you know, away from that, you know, in me. I mean, I'm a, right. you know, a, a bougie kid from a bougie <laughs> family. I'm not a kid anymore, but I was a bougie kid. Right. Now I'm a bougie old but, man. But the, um, the thing about photography, <laughs> now, the thing about photography now is it's, there's, there's a lot of different, worlds of it i mean there's a lot of different there are many tribes. many different worlds i of mean it. but yeah. but i think my point before was that it's important to me for for self-respect not for any other reason to say look you can be a fully uh intelligent fully alive fully awake fully articulate fully expressive fully historically conscious and psychologically conscious human being as much so as any film director, architect, you know, writer, painter, what have you, and you can be a photographer, and that that's a position that needs to be defended. And in fact, it's not something that I should have to prove or that any of us should have to prove. I mean, Evans and Arbus and Cartier-Bresson and Moriyama and all those splendid people proved it a long time ago, and yet somehow one feels that one always has to defend it. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you think it, it also... I think. It also was a bit on the other side as well. I think people who wrote and curated and were in the on the other side of the world of photography, where they where it was about showing photography and talking about photography, also felt they couldn't be photographers as well. They were not good photographers. I think there's some of that. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I would imagine that that you know throughout the arts, there's some of that feeling that many curators are people who felt that perhaps there were art historians. I'd have liked to be a painter, but I couldn't really do it. You know, plenty of producers feel I'd have liked to be a a filmmaker or a a musician or a theater director, but I couldn't really do it, so I'm a a producer. Or I'd have liked to be an actor, but I couldn't really do it, so I'm a producer. I think that, you know, the the people who operate the, the support structure of the arts, you know, there's always a, a bit of a, a split between them and, and the ones who are in practice. But there are some who are in practice who will cross over the line and, you know, spend a period of time, you know, doing a curatorial project, as I've done, or who will run a gallery for a period of time, or, or maybe even take on a, uh, you know, running a museum department and, who knows? Maybe then they'll get swallowed yeah. up by that museum <laughs> department and never come back. Right. But, uh, but th- there is certainly uh, a lot more crossover. But I think there's more crossover. And there's, I, I think that the, the intense purism of the Tchaikovsky era had a function. Um, it was a way of saying we photographers are, and people involved with photography are so pleased by what we do, so proud of what we do that we are willing to look only to it and not we we don't need to try to attach ourselves to other worlds to the worlds of the other artists to the worlds of the filmmakers to the worlds of the journalists etc cetera, etc cetera. we don't have to do that right so the pure the purism you know was was almost a flag of defiance at 
a certain moment in time. But I think that's that's over. That's that's long over. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the utility of it is over. I don't mean that people don't. Some people don't still cling to it. Some do. Absolutely. But it, it's not as useful as it once right. was. Uh, yeah. I guess the last thing I would say about this was that, and going back to this idea of you should embrace it, is the is that a lot of the writing that we come across in, uh, like, if you were to pick up art form today, or if you were to pick up various magazines, uh, October magazines that are writing about the arts that a lot of the writing on photography and the other arts is coming from more of an of a professional art historical uh, perspective you know theoretical uh go tying together their their understanding or their their different theories that they're putting together about whatever whatever art practice that they're referring to and so it's coming from that perspective and i i'm happy to read less good writing from a photographer talking about them trying to, as you said, trying to like articulate what it is about this medium that's affecting them. So I wouldn't say there's anything necessarily less good about it. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying, I meant like, you know, you've got to start somewhere. You read the bad stuff. You if, mean. <laughs> I mean, if it's bad writing, you know, it, they don't have to be a brilliant writer to start yeah. off with if, if, if the ideas are good. You, you know, know, I, I spent a period of time, um, uh, some years ago in a uh, uh, sort of a research department at uh, NYU. I got a lot out of it. It was a great experience. But many of the people who were, uh, who were there, uh, you know, they were all, apart from me, they were all academic people, and many of them were very, very heavily involved with theory, whether it was cultural studies theory, whether it was historical theory, whether it was political theory, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there is a whole world within the, there's a world within a world in academia of the theory people, as, you know, you must know very, very well living at Columbia. You know, I have nothing to do with that world for the most part. You know, to some, uh, from time to time, I'll, I'll meet somebody, talk with somebody who's, you know, heavily engaged in it. But I really almost don't know the language, and and I have to work very, very hard very often to understand what they're talking about because, because in fact, very often that language is meant to be hermetic. It's meant to be understood only by the other people who are members of that same fraternity. They're not speaking to a general audience at all. No, it's shorthand. You know, it is a kind of a shorthand and and, you know, involves everything from academic politics, university to university, to uh, uh, the sciences. The, I mean, it, it's, it tries to be... Well, one thing that it often... Uh, you know, one thing, I mean, my son is a real scientist, and that's got yes. nothing to do with it either. Yes, you know, he's studying that. genetics. I, that's a science. <laughs> you know, what we're speaking of here in the theory crowd, I think, is an effort to turn the humanities... Uh, in the direction. It's a kind of scientism. It's not mm-hmm. science, yes, yes. but it's wanting to give the study of the humanities the appearance of, of science for the sake of gaining some of the authority of science. And that's really what it's after. Now, you know, I can't go there. I think that, you know, what we do in the humanities and, and the fine arts is, you know, subjective at the beginning of the day, and it's it's subjective when night falls. It's, it's subjective, period. It doesn't mean, subjective doesn't mean untruthful. Uh, and, and one has to work very, very hard to, 
you know, to to pursue and and achieve some kind of truth in one's work, but. It's not a scientific truth. It's a, it's an expressive truth. It's a, a perceptual truth, and I don't think that you gain very much by uh, by seeking to to make it look like something that it's not. In the writing that I've done, the writing is uh, it comes out of a pure humanism, which says you know as human beings we look at these things that we human beings make, which we call works of art. They affect us in certain ways. The good ones have certain magical properties. Why we are affected by objects that have magical properties, we don't really understand. We've never really understood. We don't even understand uh, historically. And I'm not exaggerating because, in fact, through much of history, works of art have been seen to have magical properties, icons in churches, masks in Africa, uh, you know, sculpture in Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. Spirits and although in that's, photography, right? Sorry? Spirits in photography. Well, you know, yeah. that's, that, those, now you're getting to weirdos. <laughs> right. But, you know, but, I, but without going there, what I mean is, when I say magical properties, what I mean is that the image, you know, let's call it a photograph, seems to have a kind of force that we cannot explain, seems to... Uh, to, to direct us, to drive us emotionally in ways that reach beyond the pure informational service that the picture provides, right? And since we cannot explain this quote-unquote magical effect that, that objects have on us, you know, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to try to be truthful, we must simply speak of the effects that they have. And so all the writing that I've done is really about that. I mean, you know, the writing about pictures that I've done really seeks to do only two things. One is to say, you know, here's what I thought and felt looking at that picture, and here's how what I thought and felt looking at that picture connects to everything else I think I might know about culture, history, place, time, you know, human relationships, etc. And that's it. I don't reach farther than that. I do not try to come up with a, a comprehensive theory of how pictures work or should work. Um, I'm not even very interested in doing that. Leo, I think that's a great place to, to end it on. I think that was a very articulate and nice way to, to wrap it up. So thank you very much for having us here today. Yeah. Okay. I mean, thank you. <laughs>